I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 19, and we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. Isaiah 19, beginning with verse 18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation, Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. And that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. The scripture teaches very clearly, I believe, that God will bless Israel in the future will bless them as a nation, not merely as a small remnant. That blessing will not fall upon Israel, and we need to be very clear about this. That blessing will not fall upon Israel until Israel believes in Jesus Christ, receives Christ whom she has pierced, according to Zechariah 12.10. Presently, Israel is a covenant-breaking nation. Presently, Israel is, according to Paul, in Romans eleven twenty-eight, the enemy of God for the sake of the gospel. But Israel, as we have been seeking to understand, and the last couple sermons, and this one as well, I believe teach that 
Israel will become a Christian nation with a distinctly Christian constitution together with Gentile nations of the world. I believe that even in this text that we find that Israel will not have a different form of Christianity from that of the other Christian nations of the world. In fact, I believe this text teaches that the Christian Church of Israel and the Christian Church of Egypt, which is presently an Islamic nation, will in the future hold the same biblical doctrine, worship, and church government. The Christian Church of Israel will not gather in a rebuilt temple offering animal sacrifices through the Levitical priesthood, nor will the Christian Church of Egypt gather in Islamic mosques and pray toward Mecca. Both of these national churches will gather on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, and will attend unto the faithful preaching of God's word through faithful ministers. And both of these nations will confirm the new covenant in Christ's blood by means of the Lord's Supper. Dear ones, there is a time coming when God will remember his covenant made with Israel as a nation. Not a different covenant than was, will be made with the nations of the world. The same new covenant of grace is the covenant that will be given to Israel as well as to the nations of this world. When the Lord converts Israel and nations of this world unto himself, he will do so through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And both Israel and the nations will become Christ's people by way of national covenants sworn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That I hoped that we will be able to make clear as we move through the text before us in Isaiah 19 today. Two main points. First, a brief background to the book of Isaiah. And then second, uh, important questions to be answered from Isaiah 19. So first of all, a brief background to the book of Isaiah. As we continue to consider Israel's future, as we have already considered Israel's past, Israel's present, uh, the present state of Israel, and as we consider the future of Israel, let us hear what God prophesies in the Old Testament 
what will come to pass. And we, again, the last couple sermons, including now this one, we have been focusing upon the Old Testament scriptures. But we do plan, by God's grace, uh, to turn next Lord's Day to the New Testament scriptures to see whether those New Testament scriptures confirm what we have been seeing and understanding from the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet penned this book by inspiration of the Holy Spirit between uh, somewhere between the years approximately a 740 uh, BC to 686 uh, BC. Uh, he was, in fact, in the city of Jerusalem when it was besieged, that memorable occasion was besieged, besieged by the massive Assyrian army in 722 BC under the reign of good, righteous King Hezekiah. And at that particular time, you recall, God slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night, and the siege ended. Isaiah is filled with important promises of the coming of Jesus Christ. For example, we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, this prophecy, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In Isaiah, I think we find the fullest description in the Old Testament of the Messiah's suffering for the sins of his people, of Christ's death, of his resurrection, in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah addresses God's righteous judgment that is to fall upon Israel and upon the surrounding nations in the first 39 chapters. That seems to be the focus in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, the Lord comforts his people with his tender mercies, which will be realized in Jesus Christ. This chapter, Isaiah chapter 19, I, I would submit to you is, it's a very unique chapter in the book of Isaiah, in that there are two parts uh, to this chapter. And in the first part of this chapter, we see how God's judgment falls upon one of Israel's greatest enemies in biblical history, Egypt. Isaiah 19, verses 1 through 17. But in the second part of this same chapter, Isaiah 19, God promises to pour out upon Egypt his mercy and salvation 
through Jesus Christ. And that's the focus of the sermon. This Lord's Day is Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25. In fact, Isaiah, in this chapter, ties together the future salvation of Israel with the future salvation of two of Israel's greatest enemies in recorded history, in biblical history, redemptive history, namely Egypt and Assyria, modern-day Iraq. I submit to you that the blessed salvation of Israel, of Egypt, and of Assyria is not to be realized in a, in a small, tiny remnant of those nations coming to Christ. That's not what we read here in chapter 19. But rather in Israel, Egypt, and Assyria as nations coming to Christ. Not every single person in those nations, but the greater part of those nations and the representatives of those nations coming to Christ and covenanting to be the Lord's people. Most of Isaiah chapter 19 then is not a prophecy so much about Israel, but actually a prophecy about Egypt. Chapter 19, verse 1, the burden of Egypt, we read. The burden of Egypt, that is the weighty matter concerning Egypt, is what is spoken of as really the theme of chapter 19. So why am I preaching on Isaiah 19 if most of 19, chapter 19, has to do with Egypt? I thought we were talking about the future of Israel. That was the uh, part of the series that we were focusing on at this time. Well, I want you to see that is Egypt's conversion to Christ is not without Israel's conversion to Christ. And Israel's conversion to Christ is not without Egypt's conversion to Christ. That there is a connection here. We don't know how that connection necessarily is going to be manifested in history, but what we hope to explain in the exposition of this chapter is that there is a connection between the salvation, the conversion of Israel as a nation and that of Egypt and that of Assyria. I won't be expounding uh, the whole chapter uh, in verses 1 through 17 of this chapter simply to say that God in those verses brings his judgment upon Egypt as a nation and then as we turn to verses 18 through 25, we see the gracious salvation God shall bring upon the same Egypt as a nation. The same Egypt that was under God's judgment 
is the same Egypt that will be saved, delivered by the Lord, that will come unto Christ. Not a different Egypt. Can't have, I don't believe, in all consistency, the first Egypt to be Egypt as a nation in the first 17 verses, and then all of a sudden we get to verse 18, and we're only talking then about a very small remnant, a small group of people, relatively speaking, that receive the blessing. I believe that the blessing is going to fall upon the greater part of Egypt, even as the judgment of God fell upon the greater part of Egypt. So in both sections, God is addressing the same nation of Egypt, though at different periods of time in her history. That's the brief background that I would give. Now let's move on to important questions uh, to be answered from Isaiah 19 and then to draw some, some conclusions uh, from this portion of God's word about the future of Israel. First question, when will the blessing of salvation be realized by Egypt? We read in verse 18, in that day, verse 19, in that day, verse 23, in that day, and then in verse 24, in that day. So here we are talking about the same period of time after verse 18. We are looking at a period of human history, uh, which I would submit to you as we move through the text, has not yet occurred, but it is a period of human history that will occur in that day. In what day? Well, I think as we look at some of the notable events that are here referred to in these verses that we can begin to identify, more generally speaking, not a specific date necessarily, but we can identify, I believe, a general time period in which this will, uh, these, this prophecy concerning Egypt will be realized. So let's begin looking at some of those notable events that are spoken of in these verses. In verse 20, Isaiah 19:20, in that day we read that the Lord will send Egypt a great savior, when Egypt cries unto the Lord, a great savior. This is also, you'll recall from a couple Lord's days back, this is what we saw would be the case when Israel besieged, surrounded, or being in a, a situation uh, in which uh, she has been overcome by enemy forces will cry out as well to the Lord, and the Lord will send Israel a savior, a deliverer, in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. 
So who is this great savior that Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah, will send to deliver Egypt? Some have thought it was Alexander the Great or some other political leader, ruler. But I would ask you, did Alexander or any other ruler bring the nations of Israel, Egypt, and Assyria together in forming a blessed covenant with one another to swear to be God's people? I'm not aware of that happen, happening uh, in a national way. That's not to say that there weren't individuals in each of those nations uh, that uh, swore covenants with the Lord and believed that they were united to believers in all of those countries. I'm not saying that that certainly has not happened, but again, I don't believe that we're looking at simply a small remnant. I believe we're looking here at the nations of Israel, the nation, nations of Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. I'm not aware of that ever happening in history. And uh, I think that uh, if there is a historical record of those three nations covenanting together to be God's people, um, to walk uh, in the ways of the Lord, um, I'm just not aware of that historical record. I'd be glad to be informed if that was the case, though. I submit, along with many notable historical commentators like uh, Calvin, uh, the Geneva Notes, John Trapp, uh, the Dutch Annotations, uh, Thomas Gadiger in the Westminster Annotations, John Gill, Matthew Poole, and Matthew Henry, to name a few, that the Savior that is referred to here that delivers Egypt is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Paul declares that Jesus is the great God and Savior, and our Savior, in Titus 2.13. It is Jesus whom Jehovah will send to deliver Egypt as he will send to deliver Israel, as we've noted in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. Thomas Gadiger in the Westminster Annotation states on this verse, that is Isaiah 19:20, but certain it is that the Lord Jesus, that great Shepherd, Titus 2.13, is here principally intended. Calvin notes the same on this verse. When the Lord promises that he will send a Savior by whose hand the Egyptians will be delivered, this can mean no other than Christ. The Dutch annotations, uh, originally written in uh, in Dutch in 1637, translated into English in 1657, note this on the same verse. And he shall send them a savior, to wit, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry expounds this 
follows on this verse. Doubtless Jesus Christ is the Savior and the great one here spoken of, whom God will send the glad tidings of to the Egyptians, and by whom he will deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, that they may serve him without fear. Thus, I think we have broadly identified the time period for this prophecy and its realization that it must be realized not in the Old Testament period, but in the age of the New Covenant, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Having identified then the general period of time when this prophecy will be fulfilled, let's turn to another question. And some of these other questions I think will help us to further narrow the focus as to when this will be realized, the prophecy of Egypt's conversion to Christ, which again will correspond to Assyria's conversion to Christ and Israel's conversion to Christ. So the second question, what blessings will the Lord bring to Egypt? Well, first of all, Egypt as a nation will be granted the grace of repentance and will repent of their sin in verse 22, 19-22. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite it and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. That word in English, return, means to turn back or to repent. Egypt will repent. Next we see that Egypt will call upon the Lord in Isaiah 19.20. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors and he shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. So they will call upon the Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Egypt calls upon the name of the Lord and they will be converted, they will be saved even at that time. Another blessing that will fall upon Egypt at that time is that the Lord will be known to Egypt through the gospel preached and received. Notice in verse 21, and the Lord shall be known to Egypt and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And so they will be they will know the Lord in a saving knowledge and they will be known of the Lord, known by the Lord as being his people, as we'll see as we, as we move through this text. Then we also see that 
Another blessing that will fall upon Egypt is that Egypt will worship the Lord, Jehovah, the one true living God. They will not worship Allah uh, through the prophet Muhammad by virtue or by way of uh, Islam. They will worship Jehovah God, the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Old Testament forms of worship are actually used here in these verses, but they are used in these verses to signify New Testament worship. Um, again, the, the form of worship uh, was not specifically revealed uh, uh, to God's people in the Old Testament that would be used, for example, baptism, the Lord's Supper. I mean, there are, there, there are I think, some references um, to bap certainly baptism in the Old Testament, but I think that, uh, by and large, again, when we find Old Testament references to, to worship, speaking of sacrifices and things of that nature, when we come to the New Testament, we understand that those sacrifices uh, have been abolished in Jesus Christ. So that if, again, a, a, a prophecy is speaking, as this one is, of the period of Jesus Christ, and it uses Old Testament forms of worship, then we are to take the New Testament and to interpret accordingly that that's talking about biblical worship. That's how God was worshiped in the Old Testament. But that's not how he is worshiped in the New Testament because Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And then we see, and that was in verse 21, uh, where it says, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Uh, uh, Egypt will do sacrifice and oblation unto the Lord. And then one other blessing here that will come upon Egypt is they will swear, Egypt will swear and covenant to the Lord to be a Christian nation because as we said, this is in the period of Jesus Christ. So if they are going to swear to the Lord, they're going to be swearing to Jesus Christ to be a Christian nation. In verse 18, it says that they will swear to the Lord of hosts. In verse 21, at the end, it says, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it, a national vow, a national covenant uh, to be the Lord's people. One might ask the question in verse 18, what, what is being taught there when it says, in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. Well, this prophecy speaks of five cities here uh, in Egypt that will speak that the language of Canaan and while one city, it says, shall be called the city of destruction. 
To speak of the language of Canaan would be a way of saying that Egypt will speak the same truths in the same way as those that are spoken in Israel. There will be a uniformity. There will not be disagreement in the way in which they speak about the truth. They will speak the same language as it relates to God's truth. Just as was true when the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland came together and covenanted and bound themselves by way of a common confession of faith, catechisms, larger and shorter, a common directory for public worship, a common form of Presbyterian church government, a common psalter. They came together, they covenanted. They, in so doing, we could use the same language here. They spoke the same language. They spoke the same truth to one another. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about, speaking the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.10, when he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that you all speak the same thing, that you all speak the same thing in regard to doctrine, worship, and church government. Obviously, he's not saying that you all speak the same uh, ethnic language. He's not saying that you all speak exactly the same words, that you basically become... Um, computers spewing out literally what each one says, clones of one another, he's talking about speaking the same thing in regard to the truth. And then the Apostle Paul says that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So what this is saying is in regard to this blessing of covenanting, swearing to the Lord to be God's people, that the vast majority in the nation of Egypt will in the future covenant with the Lord and that they will covenant with the Lord and with Israel. They will speak the same thing. They will keep the covenant, Isaiah 19, 21 says. They'll not only swear it, but they'll keep that covenant. Egypt will. Another important question. What changes will this bring to Israel and the world? Now we're beginning to look not only at Egypt, but at Israel, what changes will this bring to Israel and the world when Egypt is converted to Christ? 
Well, in that future day, according to verse 23, there will not only be national covenants made with the Lord Jesus at that time of millennial blessing, but also national covenants will be made with one another. Brotherly covenants will be entered into with, between one Christian nation and another. Again, what we see here is, is that Israel's enemies, their, their greatest enemies up to this particular point in time, Egypt and Assyria are spoken of as becoming those with whom they will engage in covenants, national covenants to be God's people. Amazing. This will bring about between nations. This will bring about as a result of having covenanted each one with the Lord and then covenanting with one another. This will bring peace where there's war presently, where there's conflict, where there's the loss of life, where there is terrorism and where people cannot be safe. Things will change when one nation covenants with another nation to be God's people. There will be prosperity between those nations. There will be unity in the faith and brotherly commerce between Israel and the nations of the world at that time. In verse 23 it says, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. There will be a highway, is what is, is the figure that is used here. In other words, a highway is, is a way to be able to uh, exercise um, commerce, prosperity, uh, to be able to have communication uh, with one another. Uh, it is, again, that symbol of peace, a highway. Uh, that will be formed between these host previously hostile nations. There will be a highway of, of peace and commerce and of one faith. Those nations that had been hated and had become violent enemies one to another, think of, again, Egypt and Assyria to Israel will become brotherly nations in Jesus Christ, bound together by covenant, as again was true in the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643 between the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and we, their posterity. Together, we read in verse 23, they will serve the Lord. Together they will be, verse 24 uh, four says, they will be a blessing 
a blessing in the midst of the land, or that same word land in Hebrew can mean earth. They will be a blessing in the midst of the earth at that time. And finally, note in verse 25, as we wrap up our exposition of this chapter, in verse 25, it says, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, He'll bless. Bless Egypt, he'll bless Assyria, and he'll bless Israel. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Not a small fragment of Egypt, but Egypt as a nation. Bless, blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, mine inheritance. So we note here that the Lord will bless Egypt. He calls them my people. Now that's covenant language. That indicates that, is, that Egypt is covenanted with the Lord as a nation. When has that ever happened? That hasn't happened as a nation. Egypt has never covenanted to be the Lord's people. Never covenanted to be uh, in covenant with Jesus Christ. It hasn't happened yet. That's covenant language. For example, God says to Israel in the Old Testament in Leviticus 26, 12, and I will walk among you and, and will be your God and ye shall be my people. That's covenant language. Israel entered into a national covenant with the Lord at Mount Sinai. They are a covenanted people. Egypt will become a covenanted people like Israel. Swear to the Lord. Swear to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will also bless Assyria, whom we read the work of my hands, God says. Where have we heard that language used, the work of my hands. Well, later on in Isaiah 60, verse 21, it's used of Israel, once again, used of Israel. Thy people also, also shall be all righteous. This is speaking of Israel, not, not uh, Assyria uh, in this particular instance, but I'm seeking to show to you that this language is used of a covenanted people, namely Israel, in Isaiah 60, verse 21. Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The same language that's used of Israel in Isaiah 60, verse 21, is used of Assyria. God will bless them and will call them the work of my hands. And then, finally, we get to the blessing upon Israel, whom the Lord calls mine inheritance, in verse 25, mine inheritance. We read in Isaiah 46, 47, 6, God says, I was wroth with my people, 
I polluted mine inheritance, that is Israel, and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. Uh, the Lord delivered Israel over to judgment, uh, but uh, he, the Lord, is judging now Assyria, in, interestingly, in Isaiah 47, 6, for having treated Israel so roughly, so cruelly. He's saying, yes, I gave Israel over to you to be uh, for judgment, but you have been cruel. You have been so harsh with them, Assyria, and I will judge you. And yet, it's Assyria that in that future period of time that God is going to call unto himself. This is uh, really what we see here in, in Isaiah 19. This is really very much the same promise that was made uh, to, by the Lord to, uh, through Zechariah to Israel. And we considered this last Lord's Day in Zechariah 2, verses 11 through 12. Listen to the, listen to the language. See if you can, again, make that connection. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Joined. That is covenantal language. Joined in covenant to the Lord. Many nations. And shall be my people. Many nations shall be my people by way of covenant to the Lord Jesus. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, the Lord says. Israel and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee and the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again is there anything in the New Testament that parallels and confirms these prophecies that we have considered from the Old Testament concerning Israel's future salvation being tied together with the salvation of the nations? Is there anything in the Old Testament? Well, I submit to you, uh, that's where we're going next Lord's Day, God willing, is to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, where there we see that the Lord will bring in the fullness of the Gentile nations and all Israel shall be saved. I submit to you that these national blessings of salvation have not yet been realized to these nations. These nations have not yet covenanted to the Lord Jesus to be his people, nor have they entered into brotherly national covenants with one another. They are hostile enemies uh, presently. They always have been as nations. They have not entered into brotherly national covenants together to worship the Lord in a covenanted uniformity, teaching and practicing the same doctrine, worship, and church government. But the hope that we have at the present time is that 
the devastation of those wars, terror attacks, loss of life, hatred that exists among these nations for Israel and the Middle East will not continue forever. Not going to continue forever. They, there will be a blessed peace when they call upon Jesus to save them. The swords of war will be turned into plowshares of peace, according to Isaiah 2. The wolf and the lamb, those that are by nature hostile enemies, the wolf and the lamb will dwell together in a blessed peace, according to Isaiah 11. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will bring this to pass as he is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. This is, dear ones, this is not pie in the sky. Uh, this is not a mere wish. This is not just trying to give you an optimistic outlook on the future at all. These promises are conditioned upon God's faithfulness. The Lord will not restore an unbelieving nation to himself. He will not bless an unbelieving nation, but only will he bless a nation that comes to him through Jesus Christ and constitutionally declares God the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be their God, to be their Lord. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, whose God is Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. Blessed is that nation. Not blessed is that nation who denies that triune God. Blessed is that nation whose God is Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is what we hope in. As I said, hope is not a mere wish. Biblical hope isn't a mere wish. Biblical hope is a confident, certain expectation that what God has promised, he will keep. I submit to you, this is what God has promised. And I hope to, in future sermons, confirm that hope uh, from even the New Testament writings. We wanted to start in the Old Testament and then move on to confirm what the Old Testament prophesies in the New Testament. When, as I close, when, when Isaiah penned this prophecy concerning Egypt, concerning Assyria, these enemies of Israel, these were dark days. These were not pleasant, happy days. Assyria was, at that time, at that particular time when Isaiah is prophesying, was the chief empire of the world. Uh, it was swallowing up 
kingdoms, uh, nations that stood in its way and in its path. This worldwide threat to Israel was real. It was a threat of Assyria. And yet our sovereign God here in Isaiah 19 assures God's people that he will, by his almighty power, convert Assyria. That enemy nation, that cruel nation, God will convert this enemy and make that enemy a brotherly nation in covenant with Israel in the future. The enemy will be turned into a friend. So let us, knowing that was the historical context when this prophecy was given, and yet that was intended to encourage Israel that as mean and cruel and as overwhelming as Assyria seems to be, it's God that works because he's going to change Assyria into a nation that serves him. Let us not fear, this is the application, let us not therefore fear whatever the worldwide circumstances that exist among the nations that hate our Savior may be presently. Let's not fear the nations. Let's not fear, there's a lot of bad things happening in our nation over which we could be driven to panic, to fear, certainly in other nations as well. I think the Lord is saying to us that we need not fear. He's the one who takes even enemies and turns them into friends. He says of himself in Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, that is to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people, that is of wicked people, of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. And likewise, the same truth. In Psalms 37, verses 1 through 3. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. That's the firm foundation for hope. Not wishful thinking, but confident, certain expectation and hope. So these prophecies are given not in order to satisfy our curiosity about the future, these prophecies are given to strengthen our hope in the Lord Jesus, our great Savior and King. Again, if we have not hope, 
there's no reason to, and if we don't have a confident, certain hope in the Lord that he's in control, he's working all things out for his glory. He frustrates the counsel of the wicked. He brings about his plans. They don't bring about their plans. If we don't have confidence in that, we will be in a state of hopelessness and despair. God has given us his word and these promises that we might be firmly established on, on a foundation of hope, immovable hope, because it's founded upon an immovable God whose word is ever true. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we praise thee and thank thee for giving to us even uh, from a passage of scripture that isn't often addressed and yet the significance of it is, uh, is great uh, because it does lay out clearly the future of Israel, the future of even the enemies of Israel. Ultimately, those uh, enemies of Israel represent all nations that will covenant with the Lord to be his people. That's our hope. And Lord, if thou can change nations, thou can change our own hearts. If thou can change nations, thou can change our family. Lord, our faith is in thee. Our hope is in not our abilities, not in our resources, but in the Lord God Almighty, in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.